much of the way that the virus has unfolded is just the smallest peephole into what a world of climate emergency looks like. Um, and that's because um, it comes back to inequality, which is, I think, the thing that I'm like adamant is the tie between all of these crises and is the thing that made us vulnerable to coronavirus and the thing that will make us vulnerable to the climate emergency is we're only as a society as strong as the weakest person, right? Yeah. And inequality has sort of made us vulnerable because what, what inequality is, is how we organize ourselves as society. 100%. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like, and this is grim, it's, but it's almost as if the grim reaper arrives and we've told them who to take first. Hello everyone, welcome to a brand new season of Brown Don't Frown, a podcast which was inspired by my own personal story and journey with womanhood and feminism. It's a podcast where we celebrate new perspectives and unconventional thinking. Brown Don't Frown seeks to build a more inclusive discourse which breaks down the prejudice and assumptions about different passions, opinions and cultures and shines a light on the stories of underrepresented women who do not fit the typical criteria or ideals of mainstream feminism. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Stay tuned for what we hope to be an informative, engaging and thought-provoking season three. We have some incredible guests lined up, including other podcasters, change makers in the fields of climate change, artificial intelligence, technology, environmental campaigns, South Asian mental health awareness and bereavement, as well as personal stories in the wake of Black Lives Matter. If you have thoughts or comments or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast in any way, please do feel free to get in touch at browndontfrownpod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Polar ice caps are melting six times faster than they were in the 90s. The IPCC's most recent mid-range prediction for global sea level rise in 2100 is 53 centimetres. Up to 90% of coral reefs will disappear, even if global warming is limited to a 1.5 degree Celsius increase. Over half of Bangladesh's land will be underwater by 2050, and the number of Bangladeshis displaced by the varied impacts of climate change could reach 13.3 million by 2050. I'm so glad that today I get to host Fatima Zara Ibrahim, co-founder of Green New Deal UK, ardent climate change activist, and also fellow Hull University alumni. Welcome, Fatima. Hi, Tanya. Thank you for having me. Thank you for sparing your time today. Um, I'm sure the listeners would love to know a bit more about your background and a bit more about Green New Deal UK. So please do enlighten us. Yeah, so I'm Fatima Ibrahim. I am 27 years old. And yeah, I went to University of Tanya 
for what seems like a really long time ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, people, the first thing people often ask about, and because it's a podcast, they're probably thinking it too. Uh, where is she from? Uh, I was born in Canada, um, moved to the UK when I was nine and have lived in London, except for my short trip up north to Hull um, for most of my life. Um, and my accent has intensified, I'm sure, since I was at university, most people tell me. I think uh, it has. I know yeah, yeah, my identity, I feel to my core um, that I'm a Londoner. Um, but yeah, I, I have lived here for most of my life. I have been involved in activism for, I mean, since I was in high school. Um, and most people ask me, how did you get involved? Like, when did climate change become something you're concerned about? Mm, um, yeah. And I wish I had a, like a story that was about <laughs> this epiphany that I had. But yeah. instead, I think the thing that I say is that I, we talk about a climate emergency, but I was born into a climate emergency. We were born into a climate emergency. Um, by the time it was 1993, um, world leaders already had already come together um, about the climate and uh, ecological sort of disaster that was upcoming and they were sort of figuring out what to do and like worried about um what this meant for the future mm -hmm. um that was 1993 and it was only last year that government started <laughs> declaring climate emergencies at a national level uh so for 27 years nothing has happened so that's the context in which i guess we were born into so there wasn't this moment that i had no this, there wasn't yeah that's the reality mm -hmm. um and then, I mean, I studied law at, at, at undergrad and my main, I think my concern in the way that I came into the uh, sort of working on climate change is through my concern for other humans. Mm. Um, so I, I mean, I deeply passionate about uh, human rights, um, just felt deeply connected to other people. And I mean, I, again, like I, like most millennials, like, and an internationalist, I feel like <laughs> that I'm my identity is global, both because I was born in one country, lived in another country, and my parents are from um, Somalia. So I felt this sort of uh, feel, feeling of identity that was spread around the world. Yeah. Um, and then I saw that sort of my concern for people's welfare and human rights. I, I saw that climate change was the biggest threat to human rights and that if I really cared about other humans, that the, the thing that I needed to be working on is to stop this, you know, crisis from unfolding and do everything I can in, in fighting for justice, which is essentially what this is about. Absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I guess broadly, climate change has been around for a long time, whether we choose to admit it or not. And it's good to separate um, the context into the past, the present and the future. You've quite well, very neatly described the past and, and the context for climate change and, and the impact it's had on your life and the way it shaped your views on the world. For me, I had a few triggering moments in my life where I thought, oh, this is really important, but then I sort of let it slide again. And then more recently, it sort of entered my consciousness. And perhaps that's because of COVID. When I was around 12 or 13, I remember watching the Al Gore documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. And it really fired me up, even as someone who back then didn't really know very much about the world, as you obviously don't when you're, when you're that young. But it was always framed in in the context of or in, with using the terminology of global warming and i don't know whether that is 
perhaps to blame for this current ignorance of climate change but the narrative has always been from what i've seen or we'll deal with it later and that was you know what 10 15 years ago and now we're here and it's still the same but to an extent people aren't really prioritizing it it's not a priority at all and i think secondly you know my family came to this country as young adults so my identity you know quite strongly is bangladeshi in a sense so when i came to learn about the fact that half of Bangladesh's land will be underwater by 2050. I think this was in GCSE geography. That's when it sort of really stuck with me. And I started feeling a strong sense of urgency and guilt, um, you know, as someone who lives, I'm sure you can share my sentiment on this, someone who lives in the Western world, my level of consumption is, you know, partly to blame for the depravities in the global South. If we talk about the present, where we are today with climate change, would you say COVID-19 is a real catalyst for addressing climate change? Yeah, I mean, so I have one confession that just occurred to me, which is I must be the only climate campaigner that, and I, I think this is true, that hasn't watched Al Gore's, um, I know, it's, it's so crazy. I just, I don't think I've ever confessed that before. I don't even think I've thought about it, but I'm pretty sure I've never watched it, which is, yeah, that's kind of crazy. No one believed it. Everyone thought it was a fluke when no one took him seriously. Also, I think we were pretty young. I don't know. I just haven't. But my friend did make this documentary that I think people should um, check out called An Inconvenient Youth. Ooh. I mean, it's the most extraordinary um, documentary. I mean, I think, I mean, she's younger than me, if not the same age. Um, And she's been documenting her life since she was a child since she was five or six and her journey through climate activism and like traveling the world and speaking to people on the front lines and I mean I cried when I watched that documentary because I felt like it was a documentary about my life oh my goodness and so I would I honestly would recommend people I'm definitely adding it Um, I'm definitely adding it to my list of documentaries 100% yes it's really really good um but yeah I'm sorry I've not watched algorithms but yes I I completely agree there's just always this sense of this is a fight for tomorrow this is something like you know that's not going to affect us I mean even I remember when I first got involved in climate activism that I was talking about fighting for future generations Mm. which is now looking at it it's like it's not it's like in our lifetimes it's right now right now yeah yeah but that was the rhetoric that existed then because I think even people working in climate felt like there was more time left um I also just think it to be honest with you it's just um a lack of understanding of climate justice which you know climate justice recognizing that there are people suffering there's the a real, yeah right now there's a real human element to it and people don't realize it i think because it's so yeah. science led a lot of the conversations previously were very you know the, the discourse was around scientists and facts and yeah. technical figures and now people are trying to make it sound and seem more human because ultimately it is i mean exactly and i think to your i mean f- first yes i think um people like us who are part of the diaspora and have families or, you know, have ties to countries around the world that are on the front lines. Yes, I feel like this is just something that's just intrinsic to us. Like we know that this is something that's happening right now. We know that like those countries are going to be the ones that are hardest hit. And I think you're right with, I mean, COVID, the thing that's interesting about COVID, I mean, it's, 
it's kind of hard to talk about because we're still living through it. I know. Uh, <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's, you, I, you, I almost have to have these two brains, right? Um, yeah. And shut down the, the part of my brain that feels the, like the tragedy and loss um, of what is happening right now. But I, the thing that I've been saying is COVID-19 is illustrative and instructive of what we need to do on the climate crisis. Yeah. Um, it's illustrative because unlike I guess the climate crisis which is a sort of unfolding crisis that we kind of don't see the timeline we don't see the tipping points we can't really imagine what is going to happen over 10 years the pandemic almost just happened like that overnight Mm. and our lives changed yep um but much of the way that the virus has unfolded is just the smallest people into what a world of climate emergency looks like. Um, and that's because um, inequ- it comes back to inequality, which is, I think, the thing that I'm like adamant is the tie between all of these crises and is the thing that made us vulnerable to coronavirus and the thing that will make us vulnerable to the climate emergency is we're only as a society as strong as the weakest person, right? Yeah. And inequality has sort of made us vulnerable because what what inequality is is how we organize ourselves as society 100 percent. It's, yeah. it's it's almost like and this is grim it's but it's almost as if the grim reaper arrives and we've told them who to take first <laughs> yeah yeah so, and that's that's yeah, what's yeah. happened with coronavirus where you've ha- you've you have people of color who are you know bame communities that are hardest hit poor communities that are hardest hit, Um, people who are in precarious work or don't have access to like housing um, that are hardest hit. You have like, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's exactly what is happening and will happen with the climate crisis. It's essentially a preview of what's to come, isn't it? This, this case. It is a preview. Um, and I say it's instructive because it shows us what we need to do. It shows us where the weaknesses are in our society. Inequality. Uh, the biggest it, it's inequ- it's, inequality is the biggest thing. And I believe that because I think, if okay, we, it's very clear how inequality is making us vulnerable to the coronavirus. Why is inequality causing climate change? It's because climate change is caused I think in large part by unequal access to power, unequal access to resources, and then people are facing, you know, unequal impacts. And that if we can sort of, and unequal access to wealth, that's essentially what it is, is that a small percentage of the world is creating the high, like, you know, pumping emissions into the air, their wealth is growing infinitely and the poorest are being left with the impacts of climate change. They're not causing it and they have, no power um, in real terms, in terms of access over resources to stop it from happening. And that if we can fix that inequality issue and like, you know, spread the wealth, um, (laughs) both across our societies, but from North to South fundamentally, and give people greater access and democratic power over resources, um, that we will be able to sort of avoid the climate crisis. Absolutely. And that's how those two things are linked for me. Yeah, yeah, I completely share your sentiments there. And why it's so historic and why it's so poignant at the moment is that there's been no previous event, world event, which has resulted in such a huge decline in emissions in the past century as there has been in literally since March, so the last few months. Um, And people think, you know, is this, you know, stalling this 
usual consumption, our usual habits for a few months is going to solve the matter. And ultimately, of course, it's not going to solve the matter, but perhaps mm-hmm. it's changed our, our course of thinking, the way in which we behave and interact and, and the, the way in which we consume as well. Um, but just to give you an example, you know, you've said how it's a double burden for people who are in you know, marginalized communities and people ultimately in the global south. Um, if you look at Ecuador as an example, um, the indigenous peoples who live there in the smaller towns, you know, face this huge burden because they were hit with the pandemic combined with climate change. And they had, you know, they, they were experiencing very, very intense floods at the time that um, the pandemic hit. And people were saying the biggest communities there who would be affected were the elderly communities. And it's a prime example of how climate change you know mainly impacts people who are in the most poorest communities and who need um that assistance and that guidance and they don't have a voice um in in the bigger picture and in in the mainstream dialogue when it comes to climate change you know and yeah this is it this is it maybe we'll go back to basics and minimalism you know we're in this weird you know, culture is what drives us to consume. We're in this capitalistic society and it gives us the motivation to, to burn fossil fuels. And from a policy perspective, you know, climate change needs to be embedded within our strategy to overcome COVID-19, you know, the COVID-19 induced climate crisis. And hopefully it has given us some sort of indication as to what the future might look like if we don't prioritize climate change. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's why I think, so at Green New Deal UK, we've been thinking over the last couple of months of, you know, this is an opportunity in our economic system. The economic system that we've been saying for a long time is, is to blame for um, climate change needs to be, I mean, we need system change. Well, coronavirus has brought that economic system to its knees and that this is an opportunity to like have a conversation about what wasn't working about this economic system and how we're going to build it back better and there's something Naomi Klein said at the you know weeks ago that has stuck with me and I've said it a few times is that at the start everyone just wanted to go back to normal yeah. right yeah uh, but we all need to recognize that normal was a crisis like <laughs> yep. no normal wasn't working for a lot of people and normal wasn't working for the environment and that this is our opportunity to think about um what who it wasn't working for why it wasn't working and how we build back better from that so we launched a campaign called build back better which is exactly that of recognizing that we have two options we either reboot the system as it was and you know, lock in more emissions, go back to exactly how it was and sort of lose the chance we had to do things differently or do things differently. Um, And just one sort of prime example of this is like, in 08, our government sort of, you know, the banks had failed, that we were in an economic crisis, and they sort of just gave them these blank checks and bailed them out. Yeah, and they bailed them out with public money, and they did them with they did that with no strings attached. There was nothing in there that said, "Hey, okay, you messed up. You clearly need to be regulated. So we're going to bail you out, but we need to make sure this can't happen. Like this isn't going to happen again, and this is how you're going to do it." Like none of that happened, and the Bank of England published a report on the sort of bailouts it's given to date, the the loans it's given to date, and it, I mean there is a bunch of airlines in there. There, what we're sort of one of the one of the parts of what we're campaigning for is making sure that public money isn't going into rebooting the status quo, business as usual. That 
now that everything is sort of collapsing, we have a right on sort of dictating and making sure that anything that public money is going into is something that's, you know, supporting workers' rights and building workers' power, is supporting communities, and is for the public good, and is in some way going towards rehabilitating our environment. And like all of these companies should have climate targets and transparent plans to meet them. And the ones that can't earn and are not part of the future and are dying industries we should be taking an active role in thinking about what a just transition looks for them and not just be writing out blank checks and making sure that public money money without any sort of yeah exactly and you wouldn't do it i mean you wouldn't do that in business it doesn't make business sense so why are the public involved in bad business build back better the campaign that you talk about and i've i've seen um, excerpts of it um on your social media channels um and it looks like a very engaging initiative especially at this current time and what i what i take from what you've just said there is that it's it it is deeply deeply multi-layered climate change and people need to really see it in context and i I do think and i agree with you that covid has essentially enabled people to see change in context and that you know it's okay not to go back to quote unquote normal life again um so yeah i'm really looking forward to following the build back better campaign i just associate it with the color purple now which is great great bit of marketing (laughs) on whoever did that whoever set that up (laughs) yes we wanted to make sure we picked something that didn't like you know that was able to be fresh and new and not sort of bring old divides um because the truth is um so much has changed in just the space of a couple of weeks and months um and we'd this is an opportunity for this to be fresh and new and I'm glad purple has done that for you (laughs) yeah absolutely I mean normally I'd associate it with the color green um which of course is fitting um but also at the same time it is good as you said to be you know to have a a new refreshing agenda um in line with our current (laughs) crisis uh, and then the situation we're dealing with here so yeah it's very nice to see yeah bright colors um to symbolize what will hopefully be uh an amazing new initiative new change ignite people impassion people to, to do something about and, and make a change because ultimately i do i do really think it is individual i don't think it's about of course it's about collectivism in terms of driving the, the change but ultimately individuals can can take loads of different actions just to enable and improve the cause we can discuss some examples of you know, the imminent disruption happening around the world as a consequence of climate change. And these changes have happened, you know, pre-COVID, they predate COVID, absolutely. Um, You know, is anything being done in these places to adapt to such changes? From my Googling recently, um, I'm going to use Bangladesh again as a case study, but it's people, you know, of course, are aware how densely populated it is. And increasingly more and more people are flocking to the city to escape um, a lot of the climate change induced changes for example, natural disasters, flooding, hurricanes, things like that. Um, And near the city, um, up to 70% of the slums residents have moved to, you know, cities due to the environmental challenges. And this is according to the International Organization for Migration. And today we've had, you know, nearly a third of the population lives in cities. And Dhaka's population is actually nearly triple that of the country's next three biggest cities combined and that's insane um it's nearly got you know twice the population density of manhattan and if you've ever been there you know how densely populated it is so yeah i guess climate change and migration are inevitable and we need to be very resourceful and think ahead about how we can handle it and 
there are so many different initiatives that perhaps are happening without being publicized and it would be so good to be able to shed light on you know what is being done in in the global south to make things better i think there's a city actually called mongola which is um, a port town on the south central coast of Bangladesh and there's, it's an alternative to Taka and it's developed this urban planning initiative where we've had investments in the sea, sea walls, climate change, adapting to the infrastructure, um, factories, blue collar jobs have been created and provision for public services like schools, affordable housing and hospitals and healthcare have been made available and so it makes it appealing to migrants to go and work there and live there and it takes I guess the burden and the stress away from um, Dhaka and the, and, and the amount of people or the number of people it's it's having to house on a daily basis. I mean, wow. I mean, I need to go read up on that. That's um, incredible. Um, and I think it just goes to show that we probably need to spend a, more, a lot more time. I mean, a lot of the work that I do is around social movements and like, um, right, like thinking about and reading about and speaking to um, you know, activists um, on the front line, but I, but there's, there, I think what you, you said that sort of reminded me is that we need to just go beyond that. I mean, these people aren't just people who are fighting for their lives, but people who are innovating. Yeah. And like, there are real there, and there are countries who are adapting um, and sort of adapting to um, sort of all of these impacts that they're sort of facing, but also changing their economic systems um, and the way that their cities and urban development happens. I really wish I had a good example for you, but I don't have one to mind. But um, that Bangladesh example, I mean, I think is, is brilliant and something I'm definitely going to go read about. Yeah, and I know you're very big on climate change activism and you've been doing it for a very long time now. I mean, how significant and impactful would you say climate change activism is in engendering real change? And by way of example, um, Ex Extinction Rebellion comes to my mind because they're you know, at the forefront of news, they make a lot of noise. Um, but also, on the other hand, people describe them as being, you know, middle class meddling, a middle class meddling cult or, you know, the public perception is actually quite polarized. Some people hail them as heroes. Some people think they're, you know, disturbing the peace. They disrupt commutes. We recently saw the example of the violence that erupted in, in Canning Town when they, you know, started jumping on on tubes and things like that. Um, do you, would you say that these sorts of optics are helping the cause? They aren't, and I guess they aren't just optics. Um, last year, I wrote an article for ID Magazine about um, how after my experience on one of the youth climate marches. So last year, we had a you know this exploding of um, youth climate marches all around the world, and I went to one of them in London, and I think it was the first time, honestly, since I'd been involved, in I was. In March where I wasn't one of the only people of color. Oh my god. Um, so it, yeah, so it isn't just optics, you know, the climate movement has um, a terrible sort of reputation um, of being, uh, you know, white, middle class. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of sort of progress that's been made, um, I guess, in changing that, but there's still a long way to go, which is sort of when I helped found Green New Deal UK last year, I think one of the biggest things for us is making sure that it was rooted in climate justice. And for me, what separates the white middle class, purely green environment movement from a truly justice-based climate 
focus, but also broadly about justice and changing the system movement, which is the one that I feel like I'm a part of, is the recognition that we're not all equally impacted, that, um, that this isn't just about the environment, but this is about, you know, an economic system, capitalism, neoliberalism, whatever you want to uh, pin it on, that is um, creating um, the, the climate crisis. So uh, for me, in doing so, then you're recognizing people and who is being impacted and you're telling their stories. And what, what I said um, in that article is like for the first time, you know, I went on that climate march and honestly, I just think with each generation, uh, there's just more hope place. Like the youth climate strikers are so inspiring. And I was there and I'm not even kidding. There were, ki you know, kids from the age of 10 who were chanting and like making speeches about colonialism. Yeah, it must have been really uh, incredibly. Yeah, and talking about yeah, and talking about the, Britain's role in um, in the world and how destructive that's been. And when you're a person of color who's involved in the climate movement and you have multiple identities, right, and multiple yeah. injustices that you're facing, the last thing you want to do is come to a space where people are just talking about trees, or people are just purely talking about the science of climate change, or like because that doesn't speak to who you are and the, the, the intersectional ways in which you are um, interacting with the world. But then when you walk into a space that's talking about um, colonial injustices and how the UK continues to keep plundering the global south for resources, how yeah. the UK is responsible for a vast majority of uh, uh, emissions, how communities of color are, you know, are the ones in the UK who are most, you know, impacted by climate climate change, and you know at that how our children are not allowed to play outside in primary school because the air is so thick with smog, and that like you're suddenly telling a different story that I feel like matches your life all of my identities in my life yeah, and yeah. of course that's the space that you want to be in um and i think that's the swing that is happening and the swing that i want us to happen is like for us to have a much more nuanced conversation about where we are and where we need to go but i mean if you want to just talk about the environment then great but you're just going to continue to speak to a certain section of people yeah, absolutely. And then that isn't going to create the movement that ultimately wins because you're going to exclude a huge amount of people. Yeah. And you spoke about, you know, you just spoke just now about how nuanced it really is in terms of engaging people who can identify with the real threats um, as a consequence of climate change, which extends beyond environmental changes and actually have real human consequences. And this leads me on to my next question about representation, how important it is within climate change activism. And you've already mentioned how, you know, significant inroads have been made in terms of having greater diversity within climate change activism. But, you know, why fundamentally, as someone who is a woman of color and who's been so heavily involved with climate change activism, would you say there is a lack of representation of, you know, women, of BAME groups and more global wide um, representation within climate change activism? I think so. That I mean, there is, and I, I and I, I think I said this earlier that like, I'm often the only person who looks like me in a room. <laughs> like 
most yeah. of the time um it's very rare um that there will be more, like someone else that it, you know is either a black woman or is a muslim woman or you know it's but, just but um, or yeah who's a hijabi so have you been treated any differently as a, as a result of that or would you say it's it's not something that people have put a lot of emphasis on i mean it, you definitely feel the tokenism <laughs> <laughs> and then there's like this this second guessing of like ah oh, this is the content of what I'm saying the thing that's great or is it the way that I look that's great for oh you my God. Um, yeah. and like I mean that's demoralizing I mean to yeah. constantly have to think about whether the merits of what you're saying is the reason you're there or whether you're there to tick a box for someone I mean and we're I mean I guess we're recording this in the context of what's happening with the Black Lives Matter protests, I mean, off the back of um, some brutal murders. I've been thinking a lot, I mean, I've just been angry really this week, but I've been thinking a lot about what does representation mean? What does it fundamentally mean? Yeah. And it's yeah, not but, something that's just on the surface. It needs to be a lot deeper than that. Exactly. Someone was speaking on the news the other day. They are like, well, what happened in Ferguson and like the, I think it was the 2016 protests and riots happened under a black president. So I mean, solving this isn't just about having black faces in high places. Also, I think it's about how, and I think what I was getting at is that you can't just be talking about representation and be inserting people into a system that's fundamentally created to suppress and oppress people. Yeah. Um, and that like those, yes, of course, like representation will go some way and like furthering. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about representation because, you know, I have seen firsthand how me just being in the room can sometimes stop bad things from happening or bring different perspectives. So representation yeah. matters, but representation isn't the only thing. Um, and that, you know, we need a systemic sort of change um that asks harder questions about like why do white lives matter than black lives exactly. <laughs> and a part and parcel of solving that through representation is about listening to other people yes. and not just listening to what you have to say but actually thinking oh what if what i'm thinking about is actually wrong what if i engage someone else's perspective and learn from it you know so yeah. exactly and it's also about creating space for people of color to create and to strategize and to and not just bringing them into the system of like oh we've got this idea or this is what we need to do this is the strategy and like in the implementation because not only is that tokenism but then you're not really grappling with the issue which is white epistemology like where are these ideas coming from and like where is this furthering of white supremacy coming from are we actually giving space to systems and ideas and like creation that is entirely led by people of color um and that's the thing like at all levels that we should be fighting for and this stuff i mean in in what that what I commit to doing is sort of creating those spaces that we're not creating strategies for people, but we're just creating the space to step back so that people have what they need to create what works for them. And can tell their own stories in the exactly. process as well. Exactly. And by way of example, representation, um, the recently the Ugandan climate activist who has cropped out of the photo of a group of climate change activists um, which included Greta Thunberg. I mean, that was mm-hmm. just, and that was brought up again, actually, in the wake of Black Lives Matter recently. Mm-hmm. I saw it on my Twitter, on my Twitter Me feed. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, there is there really- I mean, it says it all, right? Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, it was already like there was, I mean, I, and again, I'm very clear to say that I think what Greta has done is amazing. Of course, like, yeah. Incredibly inspiring. This isn't about her, but it is not a coincidence that, no. you know, a young, white, privileged, and like she is the incredibly privileged um, young woman is the one that, A, in general, above all sort of campaigners and climate activists, um, is the one that got sort of this unprecedented attention. Mm. And then on top of that, in a picture with other white, activists that they cropped out the only black woman and the only person from the global south yep and i, I mean I, that was yeah. raging it was just crazy and the thing is that when i actually first came across this i wasn't shocked like i wasn't like oh my god yeah, i wasn't either it was just something that i thought well obviously this is gonna happen isn't it yeah, and I think that's the thing that's like even more sort of a kick, where it's just like, oh, I wish I was surprised. But yeah. like we so sort of surprised. Exactly. 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 Um, so tell us a bit more about the Green New Deal, how it came about, um, and why you decided to frame it around a wider UK economic go- um, government objective as opposed to a standalone issue. And I think you've already touched upon why it's so important to you know put justice at the forefront of climate change. Um, but yeah, just in your own words, I mean, how did it come yeah. out? So I, I mean, whilst I've been concerned about this issue, um, and I, I, I have to say, actually, I, I think I'm a deeply unho- unhopeful person. No, you're and not. The only, the, uh, I, I think people think I'm hopeful. I think I'm <laughs> quite, but I'm a deeply unhopeful person in general, I think, about so many things that are happening in the world. But the bit of me that is hopeful manifests in my commitment to fighting climate change, just because that's the thing that's time bound. I'm like, okay, maybe as there a, is hope we can as change. As a deadline. Like, yeah, as a deadline. I mean, let's save the world so we can do that kind of thing. I mean, that's where my, the, how my bit of hope manifests is being you like, work. I'm, I'm going to make sure we have more time to fix things. Do you work well <laughs> under pressure? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that explains uh, it then. Um, I did I oh I was one of those people that was in the computer lab eight hours before the deadline starting my essay anyway that was me too uh, (laughs) all nighters all the way exactly Green New Deal is where to start I mean it has a history so the Green New Deal um is modeled on Franklin D. Roosevelt, the American president in the 1930s. Is oh, I didn't know that. Reforms. Yes. Mm. So he, in the 1930s, the U.S. was sort of facing two major, um, major issues. One of them was the economic depression. Um, and the second was the Dust Bowl, which was this ecological crisis that they were um, facing. And he came in and came in with his New Deal reforms, which were a set of public works programs um, that created sort of millions of jobs. Um, He put democracy back in the driving seat of the economy. So like he dismantled the gold standard and, you know, pretty much brought the banks under his control. Um, And with that sort of, yeah, it started this job creation program that, you know, both put people back into work because they were seeing the highest uh, level of unemployment ever and put them back into jobs that helped rehabilitate the environment. Oh, wow. So you can see how, you know, he dealt with the economic crash, put people back to work and dealt with the um, 
dealt with the ecological crisis by making sure that the jobs that he was creating were ones where people are helping rehabilitate um, the environment. So, I mean, and there are so many other, I mean, great elements to it, but there was also terrible elements to it, which was like, it was a deeply racist and sexist program. Um, those jobs were for white men. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the sort of, the core to it was this idea that like democracy could be in the driving seat that banks weren't in control and that money could be used for the public good right and it's like it's, over power money yeah and yeah. it's like it's the exact opposite to austerity yeah it's keynesian economics yeah so yes borrowing yeah and, and and investing and thinking that's the way that we can grow our economy so yeah. based on that um 2007 eight just actually just before the um the economic crash that we had uh some economists and climate campaigners in the UK came together and again similarly faced with you know a you know, an oncoming downturn in the economy um climate change is staring us in the face how about a green new deal <laughs> yeah um and a green and the difference is that you know this is the idea of it is like it is going to be this sort of in many ways socialist <laughs> economics of um dealing with inequality the two crises they felt was economic which was inequality and climate change and what the green new deal would do and what was different about it is it wasn't just a green uh, something to deal with the cli climate change but it was something to do with restructuring an economy to deal with inequality um and it actually got picked up by gordon brown gordon brown mentioned it but then you know the financial crash happened and yeah. then uh, you know as it happened yep. with crisis um you know in came austerity yeah so it kind of got lost fast forward to um 2018 um you know there was this young congresswoman called alexandria ocasio cortez yep. supported by this vibrant youth movement called the sunrise movement who sort of like took over the u.s with this idea of a green new deal Fabulous. Um, and they picked it up and took it to the halls of Congress. Um, there was a bill written. I mean, just today I was in my room and I could hear the news um, next door and Donald Trump was doing a speech and he was talking about the Green New Deal in a disparaging way. So just oh, to show the sort of impact it's yeah. had, it's become this thing that like even Donald Trump sees as a threat that he needs to talk about and push back against. Yeah. Um, so inspired by that at the start of last year you know uk campaigners came together and like oh this is this is an opportunity to bring this idea back and that in the uk we should start talking organizing around a green new deal um and our i mean let me uh, yeah and then we created a bunch of um sort of green new deal principles about like what is the core of the green new deal we want and this is, and I'll just sort of summarize it is, is the Green New Deal is an ambitious 10 year national action plan to tackle climate breakdown in a way that improves people's lives and builds a fair, more democratic society and economy. And we have sort of five principles. So one of them is about totally decarbonizing the economy um, yeah. in a way that enhances the lives of ordinary people, workers and communities and eliminates social and economic inequality. The second is like the jobs creation program, like this is ultimately a hopeful program. It's not about taking people's jobs away, but we can create yeah. millions of yeah, we can create millions of new well-paid jobs that are unionized, that are there, you know, to guarantee uh, healthy and fulfilling livelihoods. Um, 
the third, and this is a core bit of the Green New Deal, which was also core to the New Deal, which is to transform our economy so financial systems serve the needs of people and planet and that banks aren't in the driving seat, which mm -hmm. is where we're at now. You know, much of what we do as a society is almost dictated from boardrooms and stuff yep. in the city. Yeah. Uh, the fourth is like to protect and restore our vital habitats and carbon sinks, including forests and, and wild areas. Um, and then the fifth is about promoting global justice um, by supporting all peoples and countries to decarbonize quickly and fairly. Um, and the Green New Deal should ensure the UK does its fair share to tackle climate breakdown and more to account for historic emissions and the exploitation of resources and communities, particularly in the global south. So that's essentially what the Green New Deal is. And we set up an organization sort of last year to do the movement building around that. And I mean, last year we had a lot of success. Um, the Labour Party picked it up and it was, its man you know, one of its big manifest manifesto points. Yeah, I read um, it. I remember reading it in the manifesto. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was pretty cool and um, for it to gain a political platform that quickly. Um, but we have so much work to do, I guess. What our focus is, is organizing in communities so communities can start visioning what a Green New Deal looks like for them. Because we don't believe that without a massive social movement that the Green New Deal will ever be a reality. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think you need, you know, everyone to be there and involved and driving it because ultimately, as you've said, and you've indicated, it is about individual action and what actually, it's a very personalized concept, a Green New Deal. It's about what it's going to do for you, how it's going to benefit you, how you can benefit other people as well, and how you can impact change within wider society. So I think, yeah, it's, it's incredible that there is this reference, the frame of reference to all these principles underlying climate change and a Green New Deal. And it's about social cohesion. It's about developing principles so that everyone, every single individual can have a sustainable um, and, and equal upbringing in life without having to worry about money, you know, and not making money the ultimate um, determiner of how successful and how um, privileged someone is. You know, there are so many different factors and ultimately it's about having you know, a good quality of life. And I don't think high rates of carbon, uh, greenhouse gases, um, you know, it enables that. So the fact that the Green New Deal focuses on um, the human elements and the justice elements to climate change is clearly, mm -hmm. has clearly had an impact and people have caught up on it. And that's, that's excellent to see. And also like the fact that it's, it's a 10 year plan, you know, it's not about let's do this right here, right now. It's about seeing the long term, but also acknowledging the fact that it is imminent. It needs to happen. Mm -hmm. you know, changes need to be made starting from today. Um, yeah. And that leads me on to the, you know, the next question. Do we think the UK government is currently doing enough? You know, the UK is one of the first major economies to legislate for net zero carbon, um, net zero greenhouse emissions by 2050. But do we really think that's achievable? And, and you know, are we even on track to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit as a country or even globally? I mean, yeah. Um, no. So, I mean, 20, uh, I, it's, the UK is frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> um is that wrong so, no it's because so in the, in the paris agreement um global leaders sort of came together and agreed that you know globally we were going to decarbonize by 2050 um and even that doesn't guarantee us 1.5 so even imagine if everyone did by 20, that does not guarantee like it's just not ambitious enough to guarantee us 1.5 um and 1.5 is at the level at which sort of it triggers major disasters and islands go underwater um low-lying islands go underwater but 
even within that, let's just say we're all working towards 2050 as the date of global decarbonization. Um, what the, the intention, my belief, at least of, of many countries in the global south, but I don't speak for them, but my, I, let's just say social movements um, yeah. that I've been involved in, intentions or understanding of what 2050 meant um, was that not everybody decarbonizes by 2050. Some countries need to go further and faster yes. and like be decarbonizing by 2030 um, because to account for their historic emissions, the UK should be decarbonizing faster yeah. to give room for other countries who are still developing. Yeah. Who are still developing to decarbonize, but also just like I, th in order if we decarbonize quickly, it it just gives us a better chance of developing what it is that we need to then support uh, the technology we need to be giving over um, to other countries to support them, the money they need to decarbonize. Mm. But if the UK is kicking it in the long grass and being like, hey, you know we're not going to decarbonize till 2050. Like what room is there going to be for anybody else that is struggling to do that? What room is there going to be for the UK to support anybody in, else in, in, in decarbonizing? And then the other thing actually just even worse than that is that the UK agreed to 2050 um, net zero in 2015. It was only in 2015. 20, okay. They only enshrined it into national law last year. So what has happened in those four or five years? Where is the actual plan to get us there? You can't just be recommitting to dates. I can't yeah. keep coming back to you and be like, this is what I'm going to do in 2050, Tanya. You need to, like, we all need to collectively start saying, hey, you've been saying this for a while. Where is the when, Where is the action? Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, the sense of disproportionate focus on more developing countries. Um, so we've got India and China who are constantly being bashed for taking up all the you know global greenhouse emissions and, you know, constantly being told, oh, you need to reduce it. But the, there is mm -hmm. definitely a lack of focus on Western countries. You know, you've got US, you know. Who've already yeah. Who've already reaped the benefits of yes, their, their carbon emissions. <laughs> like the cheek to then turn around. <laughs> like to focus all of your fault on countries who are just trying to do what you've done they're just pulling the ladder up so yeah exactly um yeah i mean so as a country i think people are going to probably disagree on this uh, figure because i think i don't know how accurate it is but apparently we produce one percent of the emissions of, uh, globally as a country and the chancellor this is pre-covid he announced um a 27 billion pound 4,000 mile road building program this was in contrast to the only one mere one billion pound he allocated for green transport and we've also seen a fuel duty freeze and these sorts of examples surely threaten the attainment of UK's net zero target. Uh, they do, and I the whole one percent thing annoys me because it's not true, yes, that, is it? No, I mean I think it is uh, potentially. Like I'm, it's not the number that I'm disputing that mm -hmm. our absolute emissions right now are yeah. probably, um, you know, not in uh, contribution to the world might be low, but like that doesn't take into account a our historic, historic. emissions. There's, yeah, there's a huge amount of time where we were we were the biggest. And like sole contributor, uh, uh, contributors to um, well, owns a third of the world. So exactly. So you know, the sun never set on the British Empire. So really, we take responsibility for a large chunk of history. Um, so I mean, a it doesn't take that into account. 
as so in, in driving and getting us to this point where there is a limited carbon budget. The second thing it doesn't take into account is the UK's role, role around the world. What are mm-hmm. British companies doing around the world? What, what is our foreign policy doing in terms of encouraging um, climate emissions and where are our investments going? So there's so many ways. I mean, w- one of the trends we're seeing now is there's a bunch of countries who are reducing their carbon emissions at home by outsourcing them, by opening up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, whether it's coal mines or gas or oil in other countries. So uh, they've yeah. like offshored their problem. And that's one of the things we need to make sure we don't let them get away with. Yeah, because a lot of energy companies are now saying, oh, we're offsetting the emissions, but all they're doing is just paying someone to plant some trees. But you don't actually know if that's happening. Like, how do you know? So people are paying more money for, you know, more efficient energy companies. They're paying a premium because they're, they're, you know, under under the guise that, oh, I'm going to do something good for the environment by paying a bit more. But in return for that, my carbon emissions are going to be offset. But are they really, though? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. No, there's no accountability there. There is no accountability. So, I mean, they can make all of the nice announcements they want. I mean, the moral of the story is that our government is doing nowhere near enough. And just because it may look like we're doing, you know, decently, it just shows how badly so many other people are doing also. Um, And that this isn't just a competition of who's who's the least worst. We're Mm -hmm. at, like... we're not going to get to 2050 and be like, you know, well, we tried. We weren't (laughs) that bad. We weren't the worst. Like those things just won't cut it. This is, this is about life and death. (laughs) And least worse is not something to aspire to um, at all. Yeah. And I guess looking at it from more of a worldview perspective, is a Green New Deal or, or the, the idea or the notion of it and the principles it, it underlines compatible with the dominant economic system of our time, which is ultimately capitalism. Um, and I'm sure we've t- touched upon this throughout, you know, this um, session. But, you know, if we look at marginalised citizens um, and you mentioned before those in the global south, they're particularly threatened um, by the decisions and actions that we take as um, global superpowers what can we you know how can we ensure that a green new deal is taken seriously on a global scale and that those that need to you know offset way more than others you know it's not about equality it is about equity and this principle definitely applies with reducing carbon emissions and achieving net zero how do we change the narrative yeah, so I mean that's a really good question. I'm often asked, "Is a Green New Deal compatible with capitalism?" Is it com- <laughs> so? I mean, it's definitely not compatible with neoliberalism. This is the exact. No. I mean, like, the, there's no form of the Green New Deal that's compatible with neoliberalism, unless it's something that the conservative government announces and calls a Green New Deal, which you know, corruption is definitely a worry. Um, is it compatible with capitalism? I mean, I I, I would say no. Um, <laughs> yeah ultimately i mean i just don't i I yeah um but again like i'm on my own i think these are all just terms that people kind of understand but don't really understand um and i'm also just sort of i've spent this last year sort of studying political economy and just like i think grappling i think sometimes grappling with this sort of stuff but i think sometimes what gets in our way from rejecting what is bad is not knowing what could be in its place Mm. so like yes the idea i think whilst i mean 
whilst obviously we know why capitalism isn't working, capitalism needs to cease to exist, I think that makes people uncomfortable. You know, somewhere in me, it also makes me uncomfortable because yeah, I'm kind of, of like, I don't know. I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, we don't know anything know. else. I was like, I don't know anything else. Can the world work in a different way? What does it look like? And like, I have all of those pa- like panic type questions that I'm like, oh, but this is how it's always worked. And I, a part of me does believe that that's my own ignorance. And that like, you know, uh, my experience has been the more that I learn, the more that I realize is possible. Mm. Um, and then that gives me room to believe. But yeah, it just, so, I mean, I would say no. Um, but I do think there are versions of this. So um, the Green New Deal really that has been written up both in the US and in the UK is very much Keynesian economics. So, I mean, that's still within the guy, that's still within capitalism. Um, it's just, you know, doing away with neoliberalism. Um, your second question, which has totally left me. Um, I think it's left me as well, to be honest. <laughs> but I think you've, yeah, I think you've covered it essentially, fundamentally, capitalism and the Green New Deal in terms of sustainability and a world where, you know, we aren't producing greenhouse gases to the extent where it damages our world um, fundamentally is, is not compatible. Just sort of to see again, like I'm just thinking about this as I speak really. Is yeah. I do believe there's a Green New Deal in which, you know, it's still in the framework of capitalism yeah. that we, that we avoid climate crisis. But I don't think it will be, it will be truly fair or just. The justice element, I think, is attached to our ability to overcome capitalism. Yeah. yeah. So really a true Green New Deal in the way that I vision it and the way that like keeps me breathing and dreaming is not compa- compatible with capitalism. But there is a form in which we have a better society that, you know, that is fairer to some extent and avoids climate change. Yeah. That so- could be within the guise of capitalism. Yeah. So ultimately then it's about compromise and seeing the sort of common ground that there there is and there, there definitely is um between the two somewhere it, it, it should be able to be achieved especially where we look at countries in the global south who are now benefiting i think in in some extent from capitalism um but we know that the most marginalized communities in those countries are also slaves to capitalism in a way as well mm-hmm. so perhaps there's a balancing exercise to be done there um all within the advent of you know a green new deal as well as you said it's about sustainability and achieving that equality through justice um and it's not just about oh environment 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 it's about human beings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and i guess my last question really is what steps can we take on an individual scale to be more climate conscious um I guess to give you some examples, personally, I've cut down on buying clothes. I don't really buy them very much. And whenever I feel tempted to buy something, I just have a, have a good little gander in my wardrobe and realize I've got a lot of clothes, fewer plane rides. I love going on holidays. I love traveling, but there are ultimately more sustainable ways to travel. Food consumption habits, try not to waste any food at all. We recently had, um, I think he was a sustainability advisor to the BBC a few years ago, but he came into work and to our work this was pre-covid and he gave a little um, talk on climate change and how how impactful it would be um for our generation for his kids generation generation and he mentioned this particular figure which stood out to me which is that uh, the average u.s household has three hundred thousand items i mean do we really need that mm-hmm. much stuff? really yeah and i just oh i was just God. so freaked out by it that is wow that is Wow. I'm now going to go around walking around my, 
I mean, <laughs> I think I'm just looking around my parents. room. I'm looking in my, around my room in horror right now, actually. <laughs> and I, and the more I look around, the more that I think what you said is probably true. <laughs> yeah, I think it's more for like maybe a family of like four or five. Yeah, maybe individually, it's not. Like I can do that. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, yeah, wow. I'm sorry performing. to land that on you in this time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think those are all really great things. And I think coronavirus has actually allowed us to um, rethink how we can live and what it is that we actually need. And like, we're all moving a little slower. So we're able to make different choices. So for me, like one of those things is being more actively thinking about where I'm buying groceries from for example mm. like yeah. that is something that before you I just wouldn't like have time or think about it and you're just like oh can we and like no I'm just gonna walk a little further to buy it from this person or this thing and make sure um and that's like for me um there's so many like good habits like that thinking about how I travel yeah whether it's necessary will I ever really you know do long-term travel um and how will I do it I mean there's so many of those things I think that I'm thinking about and I'm changing and I'm quite conscious about those things um in general I think the other thing and I uh, sorry to sound like such a boring person but honestly it's so important that we change the way we individually live because more than anything, more than the collective impact it has in terms of like reducing carbon emissions or taking care of the planet, mm -hmm. um, the way it prepares us for the future that we're creating Absolutely. is actually, it's about, this is, there's going to be a time where we have to live like this. Yeah. So better just prepare yourself and like figure out how you're going to do it now. That's amazing. But I think the other thing that people should do is just like, educate yourself so yeah, much more on like I think the thing that I was angry so I started a master's this past year and um you know a huge part of my course was political economy and I was like it dawned on me that I never learned about anything to do with the economy in the entire yeah, time I, I went through that. schooling through my undergrad and I just went in there and I was like <gasps> Why well, didn't I know this, this before? Is, this is yeah. how our society works. And then I was like, if I had known this, I would have been angry so much earlier and I would have understood. And I'm like, it just made me realize how much so like I just didn't understand the world around me. So I then didn't have the tools. So I, I think a doing that work and like educating yourself, but then also being political. Like the thing that I'm really against is that we're not gonna we're not gonna do better and solve this by each like being unpolitical and making individual changes right mm -hmm. what coronavirus has shown us is that even though we're hardly leaving our homes any of us <laughs> there's still huge carbon emissions in the world yeah yeah so there is a systemic like it's not individuals we're who are necessarily energy, driving whatever us. we do energy energy but there's also like there's just thing like the world is still moving right so yeah. as much as we cut down our individual stuff there's like bigger systemic things that uh, that we need to be tackling and the way we do that is by being political and making sure that we're voting and that we're organizing and that we're getting involved in groups that are doing this work alongside our individual changes but individual changes alone are just not going to cut it yeah it's about the collective and the individual yeah exactly to it wow Oh my gosh, it's been an amazing discussion. You're very eloquent and clearly know a lot about, um, as you should, of course, as that's, that's your field of expertise. But yeah, it's been really, really enlightening. Uh, I've learned so much just within the last hour from you and it's been lovely. 
talking to you. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. I'm so sorry it's taken so long to make it happen, but uh, it's been really fun catching up and we'll have to once we're out of lockdown um, catch up in person. Yeah, definitely. I usually ask my guests to extract a quote from a book that they recently read, which explains how they um, relate to it or any feminist theme or anything that they particularly liked about it. So I wondered, um, Fatima, if you had anything like that for me today so this is a book called and I actually picked it it was one of the last things I did before I made my last journey on the tube home before COVID, <laughs> before, before COVID. Um, <laughs> and I got it because it was this um I mean I love this author anyway and this is actually an older book that she wrote through the turbulent 2010s um it's Rebecca Solnit Hope in the Dark and there's like lots of really good quotes in this book, um, just because of the time it was written in. So the quote that I pulled out is, joy doesn't betray, but sustains activism. And when you face a politics that aspires to make you fearful, alienated and isolated, joy is a fine act of insurrection. Wow. And I mean, I don't even know if I have to explain why that connects no, it's beautiful. to me. And why it connects to this moment. There's like just so much politics of fear out there at the moment. And there's so many reasons to be fearful, feel alienated and isolated. And that is the purpose of the politics that's being driven by, um, you know, uh, by this government, by other governments, uh, by, uh, you know, people who just want to sort of seek to divide us and make us feel powerless. Mm. Um, and joy i think i think often people feel that activism is about grit it's about like hunkering down and like against all odds but i think the spaces that i feel the most alive in and i have to say this like it's usually and almost always in spaces that are run and curated by people of color particularly yeah i I absolutely agree with you on that yeah the passion bring joy that joy is a big part of how we live and how Mm. we show resilience and how we organize and how we campaign and i feel like this quote um quotes uh speaks to it um yeah so that's kind of um yeah that's why i picked that was yeah that was absolutely beautiful i really enjoyed um listening to you quote um that extract from that book um i'm definitely gonna add that to my reading list it sounds incredible um and something that we definitely should all aspire to um especially in this particular context in which we're all living through thank Um, you for having me Thank you so much, Fatima, for coming on to the show. I really, really appreciate it. It's been so lovely to catch up with you as well. Until next time, listeners. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this discussion or topic interesting and you want to share your views, we'd love to hear from you. I'm so grateful to those of you who have taken the time to leave me comments, reviews and messages about your thoughts on the podcast. It's really helped inform my direction for this season. Keep your comments coming. I really do love them. You can find us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Facebook by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Please do join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown Podcast. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, 
I'd be super grateful if you could leave me a rating and review as this helps the podcast garner further traction. Please like, share and subscribe. Until next time, thank you.